We've known each other for too long. Too many years. Far, far too long. But you know what's not too long? What? The two weeks it's been <laughs> since the last episode of Soon to Be a Major Motion Podcast, where your hosts... Cody Beck. And Billy Beck uh, tackle a story from media, uh, from book to screen, from from page to cinereal. Nope, I'm not. I'm not engaging that. with Shut that. The f- Shut the fuck up, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> she said she won't respond. <laughs> She's going to get you in the robot uprising. As I threw my watch across the room, <laughs> Siri, in one last desperate effort, I won't respond anymore. <laughs> Christ, off to a brilliant start as always. We're doing so well. <laughs> Nailing it. So, Cody, how have you been the last uh, couple of weeks since the last episode? I know we have a running gag where, like, we've, we haven't seen each other for two weeks. I have not seen you. But, but legitimately... In 14 we, days. <laughs> legitimately, we spent time apart. <laughs> I traveled to the East Coast to see my niece graduate uh, from high school and celebrate my mother's and my birthday and then i came back i like how you say celebrate your mother's and your birthday and then she did not wish you a happy birthday (laughs) on your actual birthday (laughs) it's true it's true she did not i wished her her birthday is the day before mine uh my birthday was this past tuesday i don't know it's your birthday don't don't ask me remember what day of the week it was (laughs) i don't care about you (laughs) You care about me too much. That's the problem. Um, yes, my mother did not wish me a happy birthday, but it's fine. She also did not wish my niece a, bir- a happy birthday on her 17th birthday. So we are now joking that we did not age because it has not happened yet. If only we were so lucky. <laughs> Your mother not wishing you a happy birthday is the same as taking a bite out of the heart of a star. <laughs> really? So, after uh, you got back from your trip, (laughs) we did go out to celebrate your birthday the other night. We did. We went to the spectacular restaurant Sushi Note, which is in Sherman Oaks and soon to have a second location in Beverly Hills. Apparently. Uh, It was incredible. We did their whole note omakase, uh, which was... The highlight of it is the 12 sushi rolls, or 12 pieces of sushi. Um, the the market fish is, I think, how it was listed on the menu. Yeah, and um, it started with an incredible tofu, and then... And that miso soup was awesome. Yes. Um, we also had... Uh, well, I did not have... Uh, I, I had the classic wine pairing. So, with the appetizers was a wine uh, with the first three pieces of fish was a wine. The second three pieces of fish was another wine. And repeat through to the dessert Moscato with our gelato. So I had six glasses of wine. And yet I was the one who woke up with the hangover the next day. I woke up with a hangover the next day. I had to muscle through that shit. Yeah, what did you do this weekend? Because Saturday... I pounded a monster and an ibuprofen and then went down to the bar to set up for uh, the Hollywood MCFC viewing party of the Champions League final. You just, you just like split our, 
<laughs> our uh, listenership in half. Oh, not even in half. Maybe five percent of people listening will go okay, and the rest would go boo, <laughs> boo, because Man City are the villains and oil money and 115 charges. Like no one ever spent a lot of money to win championships before Man United. Um, LAFC, Liverpool. Real Madrid. I can keep going, PSG. I mean, Chelsea spent a lot of money and they didn't win shit. Yeah, because they don't know how to manage their club. But anyway, uh, it was a very stressful morning for me uh, being leadership for that group while our actual leader was in England and making sure everyone was happy and everyone had a place to sit and trying to work with the wonderful bar staff at the Fox and Hounds in Studio City to make sure that we could decorate before everyone got inside, and everything went swimmingly, including the final score, and then I drank the rest of the day. <laughs> so I'll be hungover tomorrow, because I have been drinking for three days now. <laughs> ah, the joys of getting older. Oh, the, the joys of the end of a long, grueling season. <laughs> I'm very tired. So to wake me up... <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, our topic of the day, Stardust. Yes. This was my choice because... Because it's uh, someone's birthday week. Yes. So I said, I get to pick. Uh, and so we did Stardust, the beloved fairy tale for grown-ups by Neil Gaiman. And uh, adapted to the screen and directed by Matthew Vaughn. Yes. Um. So how did you first come to know Stardust as a property? So I actually, uh, in high school, went to a cheap theater with a friend of mine, um, and this happened to be playing, and we just saw it on a whim, and I made it my whole personality for a couple months uh, because I was that kind of annoying teenager. I did not know about the book until much later. I believe uh, I was still in high school, but it was several years after seeing the movie that I, I finally read the book. And uh, what about you? What was your introduction? I'm looking at her. <laughs> it was your personality for a couple of months, you said? Listen. So, this movie came out in 2007. <laughs> I'm not sure the exact date, but if you saw it in a second-run theater... Could have even been 2008 when you saw it for the first time. It was probably 2008. So, we didn't meet until fall 2010, meaning it was your personality for two and a half years at least. I had other things that were irritating about me, okay? You did, but you're also very pretty, so I ignore them. <laughs> um, but when we first started dating, I was showing you movies all the time. Because you never saw anything. I did not see any movies, not even one. And and I don't know how to best express who I am as a person other than going, hey, here's this movie that I really enjoy, let's watch it together. So, movies like Hot Rod. Yeah, what was the other movie that you were really into when we first started dating? Scott Pilgrim vs. The World had just come out. <laughs> And I don't remember, I think we might have been at your house, so it might have been that summer. Um, but you said, this is my favorite movie. And you put on Stardust, and we watched it together. And I will share my thoughts on the movie <laughs> until we get to that section of the podcast. But first, 
a trailer. I have a surprise for you. Victoria, for your hand in marriage, I'd cross oceans. You're funny, Tristan. Oh, Tristan, a shooting star! I'd cross the wall and I'd bring you back that one star. You can't cross the wall. Nobody crosses the wall. Have you seen a fallen star anywhere? We're in a crater. This must be where it fell. Yeah, this is where I fell. You're the star. You're the star? Really? Oh, wow. You've seen stories of magical worlds. <laughs> wicked witches. <laughs> flying pirates. And dashing princes. But never has there been an adventure quite like this. Everyone's talking about a fallen star. When I find her, the glory of our youth shall be restored. This is the part where you tell me who you are and why you're up here. We're just trying to make our way home. Touché. You better be telling the truth, you two-faced dog. I can get you one of them, actually. Very good guard dogs. They can watch the back and the front door at the same time. Enough. Where's the girl? You have seconds to live. Now we shall begin. I know what you are. Get him. Not for long. Hold me tight and think of home. So uh, this book was written and uh, came out in 1998, 1999. Mm-hmm. Originally as a comic and then again as a novel. And it was actually uh, something that he had created the setting of the town of Wall, where this is set, well before. And it actually runs through his other books as well. So, I shouldn't be this stupid. It did not occur to me that the town of Wall, like the English town of Wall, was fictional until you just said it. Because, like, there's a town in England called Bath... There would be a town in England called Wall. It's probably right, like, on the border of England and Scotland or England and Wales, whichever one has Hadrian's Wall. And fine. Did not occur to me that it was fictional. I mean, obviously, the fairy tale stuff is fictional. Yes. But... Yeah. Um, But yes, he had come up with this idea. He talks about it in his introduction and his postscript, uh, where he came up with the idea for a story set on... Uh, this side of the wall, the the human side of the wall, um, but it kind of had interference from the fairy part, uh, and those characters do appear in later novels. I didn't, I haven't read any of his other stuff, um, so I don't know particularly which ones they are, but they this setting does come back up in later work. He came up with the original idea when he was hanging out at someone else's house and saw a falling star, uh, and so that was his that was the the impetus the point of uh where the story began so 
the book and the movie are actually pretty similar in structure, if not in actual execution. Well, let's talk about how similar they really are. If you would like to go into uh, the description of the book. The book is only, uh, like, it's less than 10 chapters, about less than 200 pages. So the opening chapter is uh, the conception of Tristran Thorn, and it opens by telling you the story about the village of Wall and how the Wall has always been there. And there's this fairy market that appears every nine years. And it used to be every year, and then it kind of came every other year, and then it became every nine years. Um, And you're following Dunstan Thorn, uh, as he is very normal dude, just doing his thing, being a sheep herd, or um, a farmer, he's not a shepherd yet. And he's very normal, very boring, very basic. Anyway, this story opens when this market is about to happen. And the unusual thing about this market is that it's the only time that uh, people are allowed to cross the wall. They have guards posted there the rest of the time, and it kind of cycles through everyone in the town. Um, But Dunstan is... uh, He has just gotten off of his guard duty the night before this market, and he's going to the uh, seventh pie for ale, and he runs into a gentleman in bowler hat uh, who asks if he can stay in his house because everything else is taken. And the gentleman, uh, he ends up basically making a bargain with this fey creature for his heart's desire, as well as the desire of the hearts of his children and grandchildren. Although he doesn't realize it at the time, just for lodging. So he lets this gentleman stay in his house overnight. And then um, he stays in the, I believe, the cow the cow barn. Uh, and... The cow barn, as a, as opposed to, <laughs> I listen. I thought there was. A, I, I thought the word for it would come, and then it didn't. So the I just cow barn. What's <laughs> it? Cow barn is where we, we live. We live in a city now. I don't need to go back to my roots of living next to a farm with all the cow barns on it. I hate you so much. So that night he sleeps in the barn. And uh, he is woken up by a small furry creature uh, that is about the size of a man asking him to dream less loudly. Was it a cow? It was not a cow. It was a fey creature. And uh, he allows him to sleep in the barn uh, and keep his stuff dry and so incurs a debt from this fey creature as well. The next day he's going through the market and uh, the man in the bowler hat kind of like magical realism appears next to him and directs him toward a particular stall selling glass flowers. And there is a woman there uh, who does not have a name because she is a slave. And she is bound to this witch uh, until the moon loses her daughter if it occurs in the same week that two Mondays come together. That is the uh, prophecy attached to her uh, servitude. If I'm not mistaken, when we meet this woman in in the film, um, the film, basically the same thing happens, just way condensed. Um, the fairy festival doesn't exist, but there is a guard at the wall that's not Dunstan. He sprints past the guard, sneaks in, and runs into the glass menagerie stall. Yes. Um, where he meets the slave. And I believe her, her conditions are, till this bitch dies. 
more or less. Yes, in the movie it is until until she dies. But yeah. it's different in the book. Because of course, because it's a novel. The book pulls more from actual, like, fey myth and legend as opposed to, like, it's it's easier to get across in a book. Especially because mm-hmm. they've elim- in the movie they eliminated all of the characters in that, in that uh, prophecy. So, anyway, he meets this girl, uh, and in the book... This is just a fun note. She's a cat girl. Hot. <laughs> I'm like, that's a weird, Neil, get your kinks out of the book. I need to read more Gaiman. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he meets her. They kiss. He kisses her cheek for the snowdrop. Uh, it's not a mouth kiss. Um, wait for it. Uh, later, he, she tells him to come back. Uh, after dark, and he does, and they do the boning down. They bump uglies? Uh, yes. They and knock uh, 1850s boots? <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, Form and then the beast with two backs? He goes back across the wall, and um, basically his chick that he was dating starts getting depressed because he's not hanging out with her anymore. Uh, and finally their parents, like, basically their moms meet and are like, we're gonna get these two kids married because Dunstan's being weird and... Like, cool. So he gets married, and then uh, nine months after that event, a baby gets dropped off at their house. Oh, no, if it isn't the consequences of my actions. So uh, that is where we're introduced to Tristan, who is not allowed to go to the market the next time it comes around. And he's a little weird kid. Uh, He has a sister uh, in this. You keep naming characters that I do not know about. Yes, so my, I remember that in the movie, he does not have, the, his father does not get married. His father only has one love, and it is the slave girl who's unfortunately not a cat. (laughs) Um, he only has one child, who is the child of said slave girl, also not a cat. (laughs) Um... Yes. So he has a little sister, Louisa, who, uh, in the way of little sisters, makes his life a living hell while he's growing up because he's kind of a weird kid. And then we enter Victoria Forrester, the most beautiful girl in uh, town and, in fact, in the world to Tristan Thorne. He is walking her home. He does not get fired from his job for helping her. He just closes up the store because it's the end of the day. Uh, But by 2007, capitalism had fully ground its gears into us, and you could get fired for having the common courtesy to go a step beyond for a customer. I mean, to be fair, she did also cut the line. He was trying to smash. (laughs) So, uh, Victoria Forrester is... uh, He's walking her home. They see the falling star, and he makes the... And he makes her promise that if he brings back that star, she will give him whatever he wants. And that is the specific language. He does not say her hand in marriage. He does not say a kiss. He says whatever he desires. That poon. So, uh, he actually crosses the wall. Uh, Does he get fought off at all? No. What happens is he goes back to his house and his mother is really mad at him for tearing his his pants because he, when he knelt down in the mud making his promise to Victoria, uh, he tore his pants. And then he says he's going east and his father is like, huh, okay, pack your stuff. And then he just walks him to the wall and it happens to be the innkeeper uh, who I believe his name is Mr. Bromios and I believe he's the character that shows up in other works. I believe he's got the same name in the movie. I think he's credited as that, but he um, is a little bit different than what you're describing. 
the movie doesn't have all the background with the the fairy festival and everything. The wall is a forbidden crossing, and there's been a guard there for 80 years. And it's the same guard that Dunstan gets past, that Tristan needs to get past. And the first time he tries, he gets the fucking shit kicked out of him (laughs) by, like, a 96-year-old man for trying to pull a Jarnathan. He, he does the same move his dad does, completely not realizing it will not work this time. If I remember correctly in the movie, he also the guard also thinks it is uh, Dunstan and not Tristan. That's at the end. That's at the end when he mistakes him. Oh, okay. So, so the Jonathan tactic did not work. So, uh, and in- he gets the shit kicked out of him the first try. Goes back and his dad berates. Or no, his dad is like. Oh, did Victoria's man Humphrey get at you again? <laughs> no. Oh, but that guard is 97 years old. Oh. All right, here you go, son. So, uh, jumping ahead just a smidge, Tristan does not find out his origin until the end of the book. Really? He is not told until the literal final chapter. <laughs> um. So... He, his dad straight up just walks him to the, um, to the guard and, uh, is just like, hey, you know the story about my son, let him through. And the guard is just like, okay. And Tristan walks across the wall and he's like, that's kind of anticlimactic. And then we get introduced to my favorite characters in the series or in the book, which are... The Lords of Stormhold. We have now... (laughs) Are these the number lads? (laughs) These are the numbered lads. We have now crossed the wall, and we are watching the death of the 81st Lord of Stormhold, who himself murdered his four brothers by the time he was 18 and didn't have to worry about succession. Unfortunately, his sons are not made of the same stuff, and there are still three of them left alive. Only four brothers he murdered? Yes. I believe the movie he murders 11 brothers. Oh, is it that many? He has 12. He's one of 12. And I believe it's implied that he murders them all by the time he's 18. Yep. So one of the things in the book is there are uh, three of them left alive at the beginning. You've got Primus, Tertius, and Septimus. Um... And it describes how Septimus has killed two of the four dead brothers. And I believe Primus and Tertius have each killed one. Um, And I believe what happens in the movie is that uh, Quintus? It's Quintus or... No, it's Secundus. Secundus is the one that Secundus gets fucking... I wrote it down. Yeah. uh, Septimus defenestrates Secundus. (laughs) He does actually defenestrate him in the... Well, it's not defenestration. He pushes him off a cliff in uh, the book. But that has already happened by the time their father dies. Hey, building cliff, it's all base jumping. Because <laughs> so, I remember that happening in the movie and I thought it was hysterical. Because they have the scene where they all three walk up to the window, but they describe how they all stay significantly far away from each other. One of them like starts to put a hand towards another one and then he turns around real quick and gets caught. <laughs> So, uh, the Lord who's like, man, my sons do not have the get up and go that I did, 
takes off his necklace and tosses it into the sky and then dies. And so the three remaining lords of Stormhold uh, inter his body and then they set off together to find the power of Stormhold, which is the official name of the necklace. Mm -hmm. Minor point, it's also a topaz in the book and I believe it is a ruby in the movie. That's correct. Just because ruby is more pop. Yeah, the bright red on camera really stands out. So it's... Because uh, Topaz is what, like a pale yellow? Yes. Um, this is the point in the film as well where uh, we see the star fall. He's got his midnight, uh, Tristan has his midnight uh, picnic with Victoria, yes. makes the promise to her. And then with the energy of a teenage boy in New Jersey going to break into an asylum to impress a girl, that's when he makes his attempt over the wall. <laughs> I do remember the music cue being amazing as the star is falling. Then, after, as the star is falling, uh, you get your second uh, villain, second person who is after the star, which is the Lilim, or the Witch Queens, which I did not have a chance to look this up, mostly because I forgot, uh, but I believe the Lilim are actually something that's mentioned in the Apocrypha of the Bible, like the Daughters of Lilith? Oh, maybe. I don't know. My my home church uh, <laughs> believed that those extra books, the bonus canon, as it were, were null and void because only this white dude in the 50s and his translation of the Bible is truth. Um, so I, I believe that is their origin, but I may be incorrect. But also, it's Neil Gaiman. He probably did that research. He pulls from so many ancient belief systems and stories and texts and builds his worlds around them. Yeah. That's literally what American Gods is about. Exactly. You meet the Lilim and they are all old, crinkly women who are should not be alive. Uh, and they see the falling star and they go to uh, get the innards, uh, the entrails to decide who's going to be the one that goes after it. And uh, the oldest of the three uh, pulls the heart, but she cheats when they're pulling it. So I read that it's imp- it's not even implied that she cheats in the book. Right, you're right. She does not cheat in the book. Because she cheats in the movie. Yes. And and I take that more as a um, an attempt to make her character a bit more of a big bad. Yeah. Because if you're casting Michelle Pfeiffer... You're getting your use out of Michelle Pfeiffer. Can we can we talk about that scene though, where Michelle Pfeiffer just naked for no reason, <laughs> no reason other than fan service. <laughs> she does do for the record. She does do that in the book. She does get naked because she has to redress herself. Oh, okay. So there's there's a reason in in the movie. Like she hocus pocuses herself, drops trow, <laughs> winks at herself in the mirror. It cuts away to another scene for a bit, and then we, we come back, she's finishing up getting dressed. Yes. It's that edit in the middle that's like, oh, she's just naked now. <laughs> but of course it's PG-13, so yeah. is um, she even naked? Another change that I noted is that, obviously, Michelle Pfeiffer plays her in the movie. Uh, she is described as having red hair, or black hair and red lips. Mm. Uh, the movie is, I mean, blonde hair. Yeah. And I believe her color is green throughout yeah. the film. Which it's color traditionally associated with witches. Exactly. So. It, visually, it, it says a lot visually without needing three pages of language. Yeah. And especially because you have Septimus, who is all in black. Mm-hmm. And I believe uh, Primus is purple. 
or blue. I want to say dark blue. I didn't pay as much attention to Primus. Yeah, because you've obviously they're in mourning, but you have you have the kings as black um, or the royal colors. You've got the witch as green, and then you have um, Tristan and Yvaine, who are more like earth coat, earth tones, and Tristan white. is more he's more earth tones until he ascends towards the end. The third act change, he starts wearing white. Because he's realized his he realized his potential as you know the hero of the story. Yes. And Yvaine is all in silver and later blues. Yes. To compliment Tristan. There is a I mentioned this earlier, um, the existing fairy tale and fey magic informs the story, but I also understand why they made changes in it for the movie. Because a lot of the fairy tales and stuff, like, you always have the jokes about how dark they are. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, like, dark shit in this book. And and that's something that Gaiman himself uh, took to production. Was he wanted it to be more whimsical. And he wanted more humor than the novel. Because he understands a movie like this, especially based on fairy tales and uh, fairy tale settings, it's not going to be an R-rated movie. Yeah. Um, it's going to be PG to PG-13, so there need to be more fantastical elements. But at, with that lower rating, you're going to have younger kids coming in, too. And you don't want to scare the shit out of 8-year-old Sarah. Listen, we made it through the the hell scene in uh, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. <laughs> we were fine. We weren't traumatized as a generation. So how is Bambi's mom doing these days? <laughs> Uh, the final bit of that section is uh, Yvain, the star, uh, we don't know her name yet, um, landing, uh, and the very first thing she says is, ow, fuck, ow. <laughs> she drops a fuck. She drops a fuck. It's she, beautiful. She, she doesn't even come, like, within an inch of a darn in the movie. Yes. She is She is a sassy bitch in the book, and I adore it. Oh, that's lovely. Um, so then... Uh, the next time we run into our hero, Tristran, he has run into the small furry creature who... Intru- who Sorry. Yes. Sorry. What, what was his name again? Tristran. Are you... Did, do you have something in your... Like, are you eating something right now? Because you're adding... It sounds like you're pronouncing Tristan wrong. Uh, so the book, his name is actually Tristran with an R. T-R-I-S-T-R-A-N. Why? I don't know. I just assumed that he didn't want the comparisons to Tristan and Isolde. Well, too bad, because they changed the name to Tristan in the movie and cast two different actors who were in Tristan and Isolde. I know! I know! It kills me! I think the reason for the change for the movie was legitimately a typo on the screenplay. And they went, fuck it, it's easier to say. Yeah. I, I listened to part of the audiobook for this, by, read by the author, and it did feel a little awkward when he was saying Tristran, because he had to specify the R every time. It's like that Superman villain, that his name just looks like a bag of spilled Scrabble tiles. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to try to pronounce it now, because I know how Superman fanboys and girls are. <laughs> But it's like that. Like, it works on page in the comic. Because you're seeing it, and it's unique, and you can remember it. Yeah. As soon as you have to say it. I could also see 
because you have the more fantastical names associated with the fairy people, and then you have the more common names associated with the people uh, on the wall side. Um, so I could see it being an attempt to kind of merge those two, because that is what Tristran is. Um, I will probably say Tristran or Tristan in, interchangeably. So Tristran runs into the little furry creature, um from his father's time and the creature introduces himself uh by the name of charmed because that is what it says on his bag did he go shopping at one of those like fancy places at the outlet mall (laughs) and i don't have the reference in front of me unfortunately but it says something to the effect of charmed bewitch and ensorcelled objects so yes yes because i used to shop at that place all the time as a kid (laughs) Uh, and so he introduces himself as Charmed, and they become traveling companions because he knows what's going on. They have an adventure in a seer wood, which is a, a fey wood where the trees are trying to kill you. Uh, and that is where Tristran's latent magical ability is revealed. He has the, he has the locating ability, which means he can locate anything, uh, any place specifically in uh the land of fairy so the the charmed tests this with him by just naming a bunch of places and tristan is able to point them all out um even though he's never been there or heard of them he gets the babylon candle uh from charmed actually because charmed is paying back the kindness that dunstan did to him uh and he also um gets the witch chain with which to bind Yvain. Because he still thinks that this is going to be a rock or a stone that he finds. He does. Everyone else around him realizes that it's going to be a person. He does not know this yet because he has no experience with fairy. Uh, so he uses the candle. Um, and it, the candle is kind of like a seven league boots, not like just a teleportation thing uh, as it is in the movie. Because he actually has to walk while he's using it. Um, so he takes his steps and he gets there. Um, and while he's traveling with the candle, he actually sees the Lilim, the witch queen, uh, traveling also towards the star. But of course he doesn't know who that is. Um, and he also sees the, uh, carriage with the brothers in it also traveling towards the star because they are all looking for the chain, which the star has. There is an interlude there where the brothers stay in an inn and Septimus poisons Tertius. Um, there is a running gag with the brothers because the ghosts are following them around uh, and talking to each other. Other people can see the ghosts sometimes, uh, but they can't talk to them. Septimus poisons Tertius at this inn by um, taking advantage of the fact that he knew that he was a horn dog and would sleep with the uh, barmaid. Uh, and so he gave the barmaid poisoned wine. And that's how Tertius dies and joins his brothers, uh, the brothers' ghosts. And then there's a second interlude where uh, the witch queen wa- runs into a guy walking with his goat, uh, trying to sell it. And it's it, it's the you're from the point of view of the guy trying to sell the goat. Uh, and he it's basically like a Jack and the Beanstalk thing where he's like, go to market, sell this goat, get us some money. And so the queen, the witch queen, runs into him. And uh, she offers him a golden guinea for the goat. Then after she takes the goat from him, she's like, you know what? A matched pair would be better. And she turns him into a goat as well. Oh, she doesn't even pay him in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
she she's like, hey, I'll buy your goat. And he's like, I don't know if my goat could pull your cart. And she's like, yeah, you're right. And turns him into a goat and then steals the goat anyway. <laughs> she doesn't even give the goat back. Oh, she doesn't have to give the goat back. No, because she turns the goat into a human and then he just runs off into the woods or something. Um, so we keep saying she. Uh, she is never named officially in the book. She does have a name in the movie, I believe. Lamia. Do you remember from our college course on The Vampire where that name comes from? Is it from a book called The Vampire? No, it is uh, an early Keats poem. And it's an idea um, from Greek mythology. Lamia Ah. were the original witches. They were shape changers that turned into snakes. The next time we cut back to Tristran uh, and Yvaine, we still don't know her name. He just keeps calling her the star. uh, And she keeps violently abusing him. (laughs) Just calling him all sorts of foul names. They are walking through the forest and her leg is broken. So she is on a crutch. They run into a clearing where there is a unicorn and a lion fighting over a crown. This is not a rhyme that I'm familiar with, but apparently it is an old nursery rhyme about a lion and a unicorn uh, that the lion will beat the unicorn um, three times and then take his crown and go into the jungle. So to save the unicorn's life, Tristran actually takes the crown and gives it to the lion. And then the unicorn basically agrees to carry him and Yvain for the rest of their journey. Okay. So, uh... So it's not a it's not a deus ex unicorn, like in the movie? It is still, but in a slightly different way. It's it's not a deus ex machina if you, like, earn it. I guess. You know, like, in yeah. the movie, the unicorn just kind of appears later to save Vane from some bullshit. So, uh, they then stop for the night. And he leaves Yvain, he unchains himself from Yvain, uh, and leaves her with the unicorn to go get food. Uh, and when he comes back, the unicorn and she have run off. And so he gets sad and uh, falls asleep under a tree. Uh, and then we have another interlude uh, with the introduction of our beloved Ditchwater Sal, or Madame Semele, and the Witch Queen. Uh, The witch queen runs up on her while she is preparing food, and then she feeds her limbus grass, which is something that makes you tell the truth. And so the witch queen curses her uh, so that she will not see or perceive the star, nor will she have any knowledge that the star is present uh, at any point. And there's also this bird just hanging out on the um, wagon. But I thought she was a cat girl. So she is trapped in the form of a bird because she gave away a valuable flower 20 years ago or so. Wow, a cowgirl who turns into a bird. I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. (laughs) And so there is another interlude with Primus and Septimus uh, with some spy versus spy antics in a uh, uh, port town uh, where Primus basically convinces Septimus that he is going to board a particular ship. Uh, goes so far as to board the ship, uh, and then before they leave port, he sneaks off, and he makes sure that Septimus boards the ship. It ends with Primus following... He's throwing runestones constantly, and he ends up following the star, and Yvain is heading towards the Lilim at the inn. I'm noticing, 
as you're going through all of this, mm-hmm. the film hits all of these interludes, a lot of them very similarly to how they are on the page, like almost the exact course of events, pretty much. Whereas Tristan's adventure is completely, well, not completely different, but a lot of that is where the cuts were made to shorten this for the movie. So instead of going on an adventure through the woods to get the Babylon candle, meeting uh, Charmed, helping a unicorn, he's handed the candle as he starts the journey by his father with a letter from his mom on how to use it. It teleports him. It's more portal gun than Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) He's also given the glass flower at that time. It's not explained what it does yet. But he acquires everything at the start of his journey instead of having a couple of sessions with the DM to gather everything they need before really starting the quest. It does really feel like a a D&D campaign because you've got the NPCs doing the high fantasy shit over here and you've got your little level three fighter like learning how to swing a sword in the corner. (laughs) So... Then uh, they move forward and Tristan is still sleeping under the tree. And again, in his dreams, uh, the moon talks to him and the moon explains that uh, the star is now in danger. She sent the unicorn to help, but now the unicorn is taking her into danger. Uh, And when he wakes up, the tree is talking to him uh, and the tree gives him a leaf as well as two truths, which are basically just the things that the... um, Moon has told him. He that's where he runs into Primus because Primus is traveling through with the carriage, uh, and the inn is being built by the Witch Queen. So this is kind of the part of the Herald where everyone's coming together and converging on one point. I'm just happy that this retired single woman is starting her own business. That's <laughs> it's very respectable. Good for her. So, Yvain ends up at the inn. Uh, She almost gets her heart cut out when Primus and Tristan show up. Tristan is in the stable, uh, and Is it a cow stable? No, it is a horse stable. You gotta be specific. With all these cow barns and horse stables. (laughs) Hate you so much. So, he ends up in the horse stable, uh, and he's taking care of the horses, and the unicorn breaks out... And instead of knocking the uh, poisoned food over, it just dips its horn in. And he realizes that the stuff is poisoned because it's bubbling and unicorn horns are proof against poison. So he runs into the inn to say, Primus, they tried to poison me. One other thing I should mention. uh, Primus does tell him about Septimus and says that Septimus is the most dangerous man you will ever meet. He runs in and he runs in just in time for Primus to get brutally murdered uh no like he doesn't even know what's happening he runs to evane and the unicorn starts fighting uh the goat the the goat people um so when she turns the goats into people yes one of whom was already a people yes and the other one of whom is still the brain of a goat yes does she forcibly transition the man yes she does okay (laughs) She does, in fact, forcibly transition the man. They start fighting the unicorn, and um, the billy goat gets gored through the brain by the unicorn's uh, horn, and the human gets kicked in the face and by the by the unicorn, and that kills it. And 
she actually kills the unicorn at that point. It does not escape. She stabs it through the eye with her sword. Tristan and Yvain escape much as they do in the movie. He takes the rat, the last of the Babylon candle, wraps it in the leaf, and shoves his whole hand in the fire until the wick catches. Which is fucking badass in the movie. So cool. Like, just, I don't care about the pain. I want to live. And Think of home. Fucking dumbass. Right? So, they do, in fact, end up on a cloud. Um, Did he have to run there, though? I'm, I'm not trying to make a joke. That's a general, g- genuine question. Yes, they do have to step, and they take three steps. Um, and her leg is still broken. Her leg is not healed by the Lilim at this point. So one step for each functional leg. <laughs> Basically. Because uh, he's it's also uh, he's carrying her, kind of, like she's leaning on him. They do end up stuck in the clouds, and he has burnt his hand very badly, um, which is actually something that sticks with him. His hand never fully heals from that. I don't think they referenced it at all. After, as soon as the fire was off screen, nothing wrong. Yeah, everything's he, peachy. They talk about when he's uh, when he's sitting on the cloud. He actually sticks his hand in the cloud because it hurts less. You know that that would feel really good. You'd think, right? Like just oh. They describe it as being, like, insubstantial, but substantial enough to hold them. And there's this whole thing where Yvain is like, because the chain is not on her anymore, obviously. Um, And so she's like, you've effectively bound me more effectively with this oath because you saved my life than with that chain. Because I can't run away from you now. And she's, like, a little bit sad about it, but she's also like, ah, shit, this dumbass saved my life. So Septimus then rolls up and finds um, Primus's body and has a whole conversation with Primus where he's like, you dumbass, now that you got yourself murdered, I have to avenge you. That's not cool. So- there's there's no sense of vengeance from him in the movie. He's just, he sees the body and he's like, whoo, I win. I'm, I'm king. Like, they immediately bow to him, too. Yeah, it's he is king once he gets the power of Stormhold and once he avenges the murderer of Primus. Yeah, because the stone isn't there. Yes. The Lilim goes to this place called Diggory's Dyke. Are we allowed to say that? Are you allowed to say that word? <laughs> Am I allowed to say that word? I don't know. I think in reference to the place you are. If we go to Holland, you are. Okay. Um, so it is uh, this specific formation is a it's like a pinch point where everyone going to the town of wall uh has to pass through it and she knows they're going to wall because she talked to her sisters using the uh, pool of blood from the dead unicorn that she performed necromancy on the fuck yeah the fuck dark shit in this book so uh she cuts off the unicorn's head uh, she creates a pool of blood into which she, like, sees and talks to her sisters. Uh, and then they tell her that the star is going to wall, because if the star crosses the wall, they lose her. So she goes there, she sets up camp, and she's basically stopping every traveler that goes through, because she knows that uh, they can't get, they will not get past her if she's there, because they have to go by her hut. Yvain and Tristan get rescued by Captain Alberic on the skyship. They do travel with them for several weeks. I think it's not like super clear. It is a number of weeks, I believe six or eight. Um, and they do learn different things. This is the character that was expanded into Shakespeare. Yes. I was going to say this is where 
the, I think the biggest branch from the the book. That's not an omission, and it's not Albrecht, the um the skies of Arcadia crew that shows up, <laughs> is Captain Shakespeare, uh, played by Robert De Niro. The more I sit with his character, I remember enjoying his character when we first watched this movie together, and it holds up, I think, pretty well today. He is a closeted queen. <laughs> He's got a closet full of dr- dresses. He wants the hottest gossip when he hears th- that uh, Tristan's from England. I believe he is also from England in the he, originally. He claims to be, but he's not really. He chose the name Shakespeare from English history and stories that he heard because, like, their world is fairy tale to us. Our world is fairy tale to them. So. This great poet Shakespeare, also to his men, is like, ah, he shakes a spear. And it, it's such a delightful change when you know De Niro from Godfather Part Two and Taxi Driver. When he's putting a little makeup on himself and he's holding a dress up in the mirror and he's dancing to Can Can while his crew is stabbing the fuck out of some dudes on the on the deck. That is a fun little scene. It's so great. And then when he gets Confronted by Septimus, and this, we're jumping ahead just a little bit here. It, the thing that upsets him most is he's worried about his reputation. He's like the Dread Pirate Roberts. It's all about the reputation. Yes. Because he doesn't I, like killing people. I think I read that Gaiman with this was trying to do an ode to Princess Bride. Like, it's Princess Bride meets Cannonball Run, I think is how he said it. That so makes that a lot of sense. actually explains a lot. Yeah, our our sky captain in the world of yesterday is <laughs> is Captain Shakespeare in the film, but they do so they do spend a significant amount of time with the captain in the book, uh, and Tristan actually says that that was the happiest time uh, that he spent in Ferry up to that point was spending time on the skyship. But it's only a couple of paragraphs in the book. Uh, they also have some other adventures that are hinted at but not described in full but it's the kind of thing where it's like when you're reading an old fairy tale they'll make like references to other things that happen it's just like you don't want to know about this it's like yes yes i do the old noodle incident yeah um and so they are walking along the street the road and they run into ditchwater sal and his mother spoilers he doesn't know it's her at this point uh and they barter passage to the village of wall because that's where she's going she does not respond to or interact with evane at all so according to my notes uh you skipped over something um the skyrits when they you didn't like skyrits at all I thought that if I just ignored it... <laughs> you couldn't ignore it. I could see the pain welling up from your gut with Skyrits. I knew that one would get you. <laughs> hate you so much. The Skyrits selling their lightning to Ferdy. Oh, God. Is that not in the book? No. Ferdy is not in the book. Okay. So in the film, the way that Captain Shakespeare protects his reputation with his crew, he pretends to kill Tristan when they pick him up at first hides him under deck, changes his appearance magically. And then they stop at this guy named Ferdy, who's a tradesman. And they sell him lightning for 200000 whatever dollar he does. And they also get information from him. And they actually run into Ditchwater Cell here. And this is where Vane recognizes her as a friend of Ferdy's and possibly Shakespeare's. They're all acquaintances. 
And it's from there where they continue their journey. We montage out those six to eight weeks where Tristan learns to sword fight, learns to dance. Um, we also see some character development with the vein. She gets happy and starts to glow more because she's a star. It is that is something that actually happens throughout the the um, book is that they she cannot control that uh, so she just constantly glows. Uh, it does get stronger uh, at certain points, but she just constantly glows. Um, so when they run into Ditchwater Sal, they spend another like couple of weeks with her, but uh, she has turned Tristran into a Dormouse because he stupidly gave her the snowdrop, which was a magical charm that protected him. It really is D&D. It really is. <laughs> like, this is a better D&D movie than the D&D movie that came out around the same time. Oh, yeah. They travel and Evane uh, takes care of him and does not interact with Ditchwater Sal because she can't, but she does hang out with the bird. And so they make it to Wall. Next, uh, we see our hero, not hero, uh, anti-hero, Septimus. Villain? He, our He's villain. not even an anti-hero. He is a villain. He has tracked down the Lilim. Uh, he does not know who she is. But he has tracked down the old woman who killed Primus. And he has been watching her for a while. And he sees that she stops everyone that uh, goes through. He decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to surround her hut with these little things that are going to create fire. And that's going to either, she's going to die of smoke inhalation or she's going to run out and I'm going to beat her to death with this, this uh, studded death stick that I have. Uh, and so he sets the fire, stands in front of the door. And then all of a sudden he gets bitten on the heel by a snake. And then an old lady comes out, and she looks at him. She's just like, really, bruh? You, you thought you were going to destroy me? Good luck. And so he dies horribly, and then, all of, and then he joins all of his dead brothers as ghosts, and he's just like, you know, we have no brothers left to avenge us, and none of us are going to be the king of Stormhold now, so we should probably just, like, fuck off to the afterlife. And they do, and that is the end of the ghosts. So this is before um, the final climactic battle. Yes, there is no final climactic battle in the book. Okay, so let me do the final climactic battle of the movie before we do the end of the book then. Yes. So all the same, they run into Sal, turns him into a mouse. It's on this journey to Wall where Yvain professes her love for Tristan. Um, he hears all of it, doesn't want you to give up. You want a mouse! You wanted cheese! <laughs> hey... Wanting cheese and being able to listen are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> um, when he's turned back into a human, they rest for a night. They fuck. Rest. There's not much resting <laughs> happening. <laughs> he gets up bright and early with that afterglow um, and decides, I'm going to run back home real quick and let Victoria know it's over. Takes a lock of her hair, takes it across the wall, shows it to Victoria. The hair is dissolved into... Stardust, roll credits. So, he realizes that she's going to turn to Stardust if she crosses the wall, starts making his way back to the Gap. She realizes he's going to Victoria, not understanding he's going there to tell her it's done. Because of the unhelpful innkeeper asshole. You, you know what? He was very clear. If she, if she had an inkling of self-confidence, she would have been like, oh good, he's going to Victoria to tell her that he loves me. Because the last thing he said to her was, I love you. He could have woken her up to let her know what he was doing. He also, the innkeeper also could have given him a sheet of goddamn paper. 
He didn't have a pencil. It was too early in the morning for him to find a pencil. He even says that. I'm not going to fault the innkeeper on this one. She misinterpreted him. This is on her. But she, in a broken-hearted stupor, stumbles her way towards the gap in the wall. Una, Tristan's mother, sees her going, locks Shal in her cart, chases her down with the cart. Septimus gets a hold of their trail, also follows them there. The first person to get there, though, is Lamia. She recognizes Sal. Doesn't forget that Sal fed her the lemongrass or whatever it was. Yellowtail? What was it? Limbusgrass. L- Limbusgrass. Uh, kills Sal, freeing Una. Kidnaps Una. Heaves off to her castle in the pit. Pit castle. Tristan gets to the gap in the wall. The guard is like, fuck this! I'm out of here. They went that way. So Tristan grabs the horse that was left behind by Una, chases after. Septimus gets there, follows suit. They get to the the castle, the manor, the witch's den, whatever you want to call it. And these two level three fighters and an NPC (laughs) break in to go after these level 10 sorcerers. Only level 10? Well, Lamia's like a 15, probably. Tristan hides in the corner with his mama like a pussy. When Septimus goes in, does his best. Gets obliterated. Gets voodoo dolled. Um, she breaks an arm, breaks a leg, and then throws the doll into a fountain. And when the doll is underwater, it's actually... I didn't think this would hold up, and it holds up pretty well. Really? They do a composite shot. I think it's a composite effect. Of the actor who plays Septimus underwater, floating and drowning. And they compose it into the middle of this manor in midair. And the only thing that doesn't quite work is the lighting. You can kind of tell, like, there's something up with the lighting on him compared to the room around him. But otherwise, the effect holds up very well. And it is, like, a centerpiece effect for the movie. It's It's a very cool shot. And then he drowns and falls. Tristan's mom... Says, you're my son, man the fuck up. Or something along those lines. Uh, Something about love, probably. Be the man I know you can be. Something inspirational, whatever. A good man the fuck up never hurt anybody. (laughs) So Tristan realizes, like any level 3 D&D player, utilize the surrounding area. Releases a bunch of animals into the room who attack Lamia's sisters. Goes after Lamia, goes to protect... Vain, and then Lamia. Oh, he fights off uh, Septimus as well, who, as a ghost, a drowned ghost, is watching his body get up and fight back because Lamia is controlling it with the voodoo doll, and reacting as he gets stabbed. Um, it's. I remember. It's, that it's a delightful scene. This is what I was talking about, where where they wanted to add some humor, and it's the ghosts of seven men who are all in the form they were at the moment of death. So the defenestrated brother has a flat face. One of them's naked because he died in a bathtub. I think that's Primus. It is. Yes. One of them has an axe in his head. And they're watching and just reacting like you and I would react to a decent hardcore match in WWF. Just, ooh, <laughs> like, just... I just remember that they all look at Septimus's ghost, and he's like, I'm not doing this! <laughs> They're like, how are you doing? And he's like, it's not me, man. It's her with the voodoo doll. <laughs> Tristan defeats him by doing the Robin Hood. Cuts a chandelier or two or three before he gets the right one, grabs the rope, 
scoops himself up to where Evane is being held. And then Lamia raises the knife to get him. He puts his body in between the knife and, and his love, proving his love to her. She swings the Lamia swings the dagger down and releases Evane's bonds. And she has a change of heart and lets them go free. Just kidding! She blows up all of the glass in the room, sending shards. And Tristan's protecting Evane and he's trying to help her escape, but he can't. And then Evane is like, I have an idea. And she holds him close. And she says, what do stars do? They shine. And she glows so bright that it defeats Lamia for good. And I sit there and I go, why the fuck didn't you do that sooner? And a moment later, Tristan looks at her and goes, why the fuck didn't you do that sooner? <laughs> and she explains something about only with love and I had a broken heart, but now I know you love me and now I can blah, blah, blah. Bitch, the first time you saw him enter the room, you know he loves you. Just shine your ass out of there. Whatever. She does get brighter when he throws up. She does. She does start to glow a little bit more. Yes. Um, but that is how... She uh, defeats Lamia, and then they go on to their kingdom. He gets the um, the ruby of Stormhold. What's the it called? The power of Stormhold. The power of Stormhold. It regains its color. He is the true king of Stormhold. His mother has to explain it to him because she's the only one left alive who knows. And she was also kidnapped as a child, so no one knows she's still alive. Yeah. Well, Septimus recognized her as soon as he saw her. Yes. So he ascends to his throne. The whole gang's here. Captain Shakespeare's here. Um, I think he's he makes eyes at Humphrey, who's there with Victoria. Victoria, who looks Victoria is put out. She's just like I. If I wasn't such a bitch, I'd be queen. And then they live happily ever after for eighty years, ruling their kingdom as immortals until their children and grandchildren are old enough to take over, and then the two of them use the last Babylon candle, which was given to them as a gift, and ascend into the stars to spend forever and ever together. Amen. So the book's slightly different. Is it? <laughs> so after Septimus dies and the ghosts disappear, Madame Semele, a.k.a. Ditchwater Sal, actually passes through uh, the... Um, the the pinch point of Diggory's Pike or Diggory's Dyke and uh, the the Lamia stops her and says, "Do you have anyone else with you besides your your bird girl?" And she's like, "No, I don't," because she doesn't know Evane is in the cart. But the bird who was present does, and she starts cackling as soon as they are out of sight because she knows that the curse that she laid on Ditchwater Sal just backfired on her because mm -hmm. the star was right there. They almost pass through the wall. Uh, Yvain and Tristan, once they get to wall and he gets turned back into a uh, person, they almost pass through the wall, but the guards are like, no, you're not allowed to pass through. No one ever comes through from that side. And so he goes back and gets drunk about it. And then um, when he is drunkenly passed out, uh, Una shows up and Yvain and Una have a conversation where there is a lot of implication. And... Uh, they both kind of know who each other is, but they are not willing to say it. 
And there's this cute moment where Yvaine, like, brushes some hair away from Tristan's face. And you're like, oh, no, she loves him. So the next day, Kristen act- or Tristan actually does cross the wall alone. Uh, he meets his sister and he has a reuniting with Victoria because it has been years. It's not clear how many. From what I read, six months is the course of the book. Okay, that would make sense because he left in like October and the, the fair is in May. So yeah, that would make sense. It's been a long time, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has a, he has a meeting with Victoria in the seventh pie, the, the pub. And she's like, I had to live every day knowing that I sent you to your death. She is very mature. She's a lot more mature in the book at this section because she's like, I didn't think you would actually do it. And then you did it. And then I was like, I sent him to die. I don't know if you're coming back. And so She says that uh, the reason she didn't agree to kiss him or whatever the night that she left was that Mr. Monday, his boss, had proposed to her the night before and they were going to get married. And then he went off and did his stupid foolish errand so she couldn't get married because she had to wait for she had to wait for him to come back to find out if she had something else. And he's she's like, well, I guess we have to get married now. And he's like, no, we don't. The agreement was whatever I want. And what I want is for you to be happy. I want you to marry Mr. Monday. Uh, And so remember that thing that I said about uh, the prophecy or the omen attached to Una's servitude? Yes, I do. When the moon loses her daughter in a week when two Mondays come together. Victoria has already been calling herself Monday. So technically, two Mondays are coming together, getting married in the week that the moon has lost her daughter, the star. Aww. So Una's servitude has ended. After that, uh, he sees his father, and his father finally tells him the truth about his origins and how he's actually half-fairy, half-human, uh, or half-mortal, half-fairy. Victoria crosses the wall uh, and meets Yvain, and it's kind of a similar uh, misunderstanding as in the movie where she's talking about her wedding and she's all excited and Vane is like getting increasingly depressed. And then she introduces, uh, Victoria introduces Yvaine to her husband-to-be, Mr. Monday. Uh, and then she's like, oh, you're not marrying Tristan. And she's like, no, I'm not marrying Tristan. And then Yvaine gets all happy. And then Tristan and Yvaine reunite. Yvaine tells him, you know, she's pregnant. Uh, and he's like, no, I didn't know that. And she's like, yeah, she's not that far along, but she's pregnant. I can't have kids, just so you know. And Tristan's like, that's fine. <laughs> and that's kind of their, that's kind of their, like, cute moment when... My dream woman. They then run into Una, who has now been freed and paid for her service. And Tristan gets the power of Stormhold from Yvain, who has had it the whole time. Um, and then they start argue. He starts arguing with his mother immediately because she wants them to go right back to the uh, the the stormhold, which is the tower, and start ruling. Uh, and then Yvain kind of walks away to let him fight his own battles. And she runs into the Lilim. She runs into the Witch Queen, who's like, "Why can't I find your heart?" And she's like, "I guess I gave it away." Oh. Uh, and so. Yvain and Tristan tell Una that she will have to rule as regent because they're going to wander around for a while and they actually travel for eight years before they settle down and become king and he takes the throne. He rules for 80 years or so and then he dies 
and the uh, crown passes to Yvain, who is effectively immortal uh, because the stars are described over and over again as being infinite. Uh, and so she rules forever. Amen. Which is kind of a depressing ending. <laughs> she couldn't George Washington it and just be like, nah, I'm stepping down after four years. I've had enough of this shit. There's an amazing line when she's talking to... Uh, I did actually put a reference on this one. Um, and she is talking to uh, the Lilim and... Um, the Lilum says, you should have let me take your heart back then for my sisters and me. We could have been young again well into the next age of the world. Your boy will break it or waste it or lose it. They all do. Hmm. And he dies. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the adaptation itself a little bit. We've gone into some details to what actually changed. Um, yes. Let's go into the actual details of it. Uh, the adaptation was directed by Matthew Vaughn who had previously only directed one movie. I think he had produced before then, um, but he'd only directed Layer Cake. And he went on to do Kick-Ass after this and then the Kingsman series. Yes. Um, he also co-wrote the screenplay with Jane Goldman, who also went on to work on Kingsman and Kick-Ass, and she also did the recent adaptation of Rebecca. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So I'm interested now, because I do like her screenwriting. I had... I enjoyed the dialogue and the direction of this a lot. Like, we know Matthew Vaughn now because of Kick-Ass and um, Kingsman yeah. and his action. And that shows real early on that he had a grasp on how to make action good. I'm interested in, in um, whether he read the book or the comic. Because the other two that you mentioned are comics, Kick-Ass and Kingsman. True. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't see details on that in the production. I know in the early 2000s, maybe even as early as 99, uh, Weinstein optioned this. Mm, but okay. Gaiman didn't like where he wanted to take it. So once the rights expired, Gaiman took them back. And then they went into production again in 2005, 6 to get this movie out. Yeah. Um, the cast, uh, Tristan slash Tristian, uh, Charlie Cox, at the time completely unknown. Um, the casting... I think it was the casting director preferred the actor who played young Dunstan because they, they thought he was more handsome. Oh. Um, but they wanted an unknown to play Tristan. So Charlie Cox got the role. Now we know him as Daredevil. I remember being very excited when the Daredevil casting was announced because I was like, hey, that's Tristan! Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think that was the only thing I knew him from at the time as well. Yeah. Um, Yvain was Claire Danes. Just... Just peak casting. Gorgeous. Juliet from Romeo plus Juliet. Um, also did the voice work for San and Princess Mononoke. If she... If you were going to cast anyone to play kind of a bitchy star, Claire Danes, especially at this time, was your go-to. Um, Victoria and Humphrey. Did you mention anything about Humphrey? Was he a character in the book or? No, he was not a character in the book. He's I believe they just adjusted Mr. Mr. Monday, Monday. Just kind of separated that into a, a rival character for Tristan. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, so Victoria was Sienna Miller, um, who had worked with Vaughn previously on Layer Cake. And Humphrey was a, an at the time relatively unknown named Henry Cavill. I did not realize that was Henry Who is Cavill. now Superman. The king, the 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 passing lord, was Peter O'Toole. I can't believe they got Peter O'Toole for Lawrence like one of Arabia scene. himself. 
They even joke that like he had a history of like camel riding <laughs> as a nod to Lawrence of Arabia, which is such a great little bit. That's very good. Um, Septimus was Mark Strong. Yes. Um, this is where I started recognizing that everyone was in superhero movies. He was Sinestro in Green Lantern. Yeah, I so he was also in Kingsman. <laughs> Every everyone was in King like half this cast was in Kingsman. I know Like Matthew Vaughn loves to reuse people. He's that kind of guy. And it's, I'm okay with it. I feel like a lot of directors are like that though, because you've got the people that use the same people every time. But, like when you find your character actors who you like to work with, you will fit them in wherever you can because you know it's one less thing to worry about. I can work with this actor. That's why uh James Cameron loves Jeanette Goldstein. And he's cast her in three very different roles. Like he just knows he can work with her. Um, and Kevin Smith does that with, you know, Damon and Affleck. Yep. And Adam Sandler does his, Adam Adam Sandler Sandler does his, his friend vacations where they bring a movie crew (laughs) along just to, you know, write it off on their taxes. It's, it's pretty common. Um, Primus was played by Jason Fleming. Uh, you know him from your other favorite movie, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as I'm Jekyll and Hyde. Assassinated in the comments for this. It's all good. Um, he also did a lot of, uh... He was in Lock, Stock, and Snatch with... Um, Guy Ritchie? Guy Ritchie. Thank you. Um, he also did Layer Cake previously with Matthew Vaughn, so pulled him from there. Uh, Lamia, as previously stated, Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman herself. Gorgeous. Another just peak casting moment. Captain Shakespeare was Robert De Niro. If you don't know who Robert De Niro is, you need to wake up. <laughs> uh, Ferdy was Ricky Gervais from the British office and various uh, controversies. <laughs> Uno was Kate McGowan, Ditchwater Sal was Melanie Hill, both mostly featured in British television. I didn't recognize any of their credits. Have they shown up on Taskmaster yet? Not Taskmaster, but they were both on EastEnders. And the film had a narrator. Not my favorite, but it was Very briefly. A bit in the beginning, bit in the end, which is how I'm okay with a narrator, especially with a fairy tale. It's like, it it leads you in like Grandpa's reading you a story, leads you out like Grandpa's reading you a story, kind of like Grandpa reading the story in Princess Bride. (laughs) Um, And the narrator was Ian McKellen, Magneto himself. I like how you went with Magneto and not the one you had written down, which was Gandalf. (laughs) I realized the superhero thing, and you know what? I'm going to stick... I'm going to stick with it, because everyone plays a superhero now. This is true. If you're not a superhero, you're in the Fast franchise. <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes you're both. So there are a few changes I wanted to talk about in terms of character. We briefly talked about one of them, which is uh, Victoria. Yes. Um, and similarly, uh, Evane. In the book, it seems like Evane has more agency, whereas in the movie, she's definitely more objectified like literally objectified and did you have any thoughts about that having read and loved this movie so i have i uh i know i've talked to you before about um hell's moving castle and the differences from the book to the screen on that one because miyazaki doesn't miss often i feel like that same kind of flattening of a pretty prickly character, especially a female character, into a movie where you're trying to um, do the hero's journey type thing. I've seen it before, and that doesn't make it bad, per se, but it's not as strong as it could have been. Um, 
I do wish we saw more of her kind of sass and foul mouth. Yeah. But I also understand that the movie is PG-13, mm-hmm. so you can't have her dropping fuck bombs. She gets one. <laughs> but you're right, you can't have her dropping fuck bombs, but you, you can have her give some sass. I wonder if they were trying to walk a line when they were writing the screenplay, where they didn't want her to be a stereotype of a sass bitch. And kind of just landed on stereotype of, like, prize. Damsel in distress. Exactly. She spends half the movie chained. Yeah. Um, she, she wins the final battle, but it's only because the man showed up. It, it's kind of a deus ex machina as well. Like, it's yeah. an ability she had all along. It was there and it was hinted at. It's, it's earned, but barely. And it still doesn't give her... A lot of agency. Yeah. Like, only twice does she act on her own, really. And it's when she rides the deus ex unicorn to the tavern and almost gets killed. And wanders towards the wall and almost gets killed. In... It's also kind of... um, In the book, it's implied that she had to agree to accept the power of Stormhold. Like, when when it runs into her, she had to agree to the obligation... Um, of keeping it so at least like setting the story in motion it's kind of um it is a choice by her as well Mm. and it's a choice by tristan um but yeah it's definitely she definitely got flattened out and softened for the screen and unfortunately i think when you have there was a female screenwriter but Especially in 2007, yeah. in that era, you have the you have the strong female character, but you also have the I, I don't know. Like I feel like they it, it almost feels like they made a deliberate choice to sacrifice one female character to be able to have a queer coded character who's told. As subtly as he is for this time. Because even as late as 2007, it was rare for a queer-coded character to be masculine still. Yeah. And De Niro still plays the character with masculinity, even when he drops the mask and is himself. He's not, you know, crying and limp-wrist and flailing his arms about and all that. He still owns up and he has that confidence in who he is. Not fully until the crew accepts him. He he needs his Colin and Ted Lasso moment. <laughs> um, but like he he's still he's played with more depth than similar characters would have been at the time. Yeah, and I wonder if that's part of the reason why kind of the balancing. Evane is more one note, and Lamia, even though her character is extended a bit from the book for the movie, again, because Michelle Pfeiffer, she's almost played as more malicious and more evil evil yeah. as opposed to the selfish or... Yeah, the original evil. Yeah. Like, I could almost see her as, like, a, a devil allegory in the movie. Not even an allegory, but, like, she is... She is, like, the evil, because you've got Septimus, but even she just, like, sweeps him away. Yeah, she's the big bad. It feels like in the novel, from what you said, that Septimus and uh, Lamia are more like obstacles on the journey. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, like, Lamia... Um, 
the name she gives in the book is Morwen Egg. Um, it's one of those things where it's like she's going to be there whether or not Yvain and Tristan succeed. She will outlive them because she has already done this a thousand times. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes back to that like little bit more of the darker fairy tale roots where it's like we existed when everything was when everything began and we will exist long after you die. You're an you are not even worth my notice. The only reason you've appeared is because um the only reason you're on my radar is because you are now fucking with what I want. And like it's interesting because it's in the... it's ants on a chessboard. Yes. It's that metaphor I love from Animorphs. Yes. Where our Tristan is an ant who's wandered onto a chessboard, doesn't quite know what he's wandered into, but now these forces much larger than him are trying to manipulate him off. One might want to kill him, one might want to just shoo him away. Yeah. But yeah, it's that metaphor. It's also similar to the current campaign of Critical Role. Um, oh, here we go. Listen, it, it's similar because you had their first campaign, which is like, these are now, some of these characters are literal gods um, or token or uh, champions of gods. And then in campaign two, it was dealing with different gods and how you interact with them. And now in campaign three, it is, do we even need the gods? And are the gods watching us? Um, I feel like that's, that, that's something that comes with longer, longer form storytelling. Yeah. So a novel, you know, a D&D campaign, you can have these characters that are like this. When you translate it to a 107-minute movie... You gotta. It's... It's almost as if they, they, the two characters, Septimus and, and um, Lamia, read to me from your description like the Nazgul in Lord of the Rings. They keep appearing and eventually they get defeated, but they're not the end boss. And one of them was elevated to Sauron. Lamia yeah. was elevated to Sauron. She's the end boss. Because you need an end boss. You need the three-act structure. Um, Septimus is just an obstacle along the way. And you can get a little bit of a moment where they unite for a common good, even though their um, intentions are different. Um, but that that's what you need to do to shorten it down and make it more digestible for, you know, a four quadrant. You're selling a major movie. There's also in the book, um, the witches never like the um, the witches barely interact with Tristan. They always tend to interact with the vein. And in the end, Tristan doesn't interact with the witch at all. He mm -hmm. doesn't see the witch queen. It's just Yvain and her having a conversation. And if you look at it as two immortal beings having a conversation, then you can kind of, that's more in, you can see it more in the book. It's like, these are two equals and she barely, and the Lilin barely sees Tristan. Yeah. And he barely sees her. He just sees an old lady. You just made me realize I don't think he sees Lamia at all in the film until that climactic battle. He sees her in the um, the fight at the inn. Yes, okay, you're right. But you're still, right. the two times he sees her are in horrific, fiery doom. Yeah. Boss bitch lair energy. Because like. I, was, I was thinking that maybe part of the reason why... Um, might as well go into... Uh, how we felt about the properties now. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons why this movie didn't resonate with me as much as you may have hoped is because that climax does feel a bit disjointed. 
And that's not to say it was filmed poorly, because like I said before, Matthew Vaughn knows how to shoot action, specifically action comedy, and he shoots action in a way that keeps you engrossed. So the scene is enjoyable to watch. But the emotional stakes for Tristan are less about defeating her and more about getting Evane back. So when Evane does shine and defeat the witch, it's more like breaking a door down to get out than triumphing over evil. Yeah, I can see that. And in the book, it's it's more like you are... It's, it, it's still there, because she's not evil. She's just a force. It's like the, the end of the movie hit me like in a WWE cage match when the babyface wins by escaping the cage. Oh, that's the worst. All you did was run away. And yes, you defeated the villain technically, and your hand is held high at the end, and you win. But your intent wasn't to triumph over this evil, defeat the villain, stop the monster. Your intent was escape with your life. And whether or not it's intended that way, there's a level of cowardice to it. Yeah. And I think that might be why it's not my favorite movie. I do like it. I tried to speak with as much praise as I could about it because there are a lot of good things in the movie. But it's not one when I'm feeling down, I'm going to pull off the shelf and throw in. You know? I'm going to reach towards probably some comedies or some like maybe some Jackie Chan, something like that, for that kind of night. I'm not reaching for Stardust. That's fair. You and I are different people. You can reach for Stardust all you want. <laughs> If I recall correctly, when we first moved in here into this apartment before we had internet, I want to say you watched it on a day off like twice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Because it was, I mean, this is also very similar to my other favorite movie, which is Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Not League of Extraordinary Gentlemen anymore? No, not League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, still in my top five, though. Um <laughs> Yeah, you give me pain, I give you pain. I felt that one in my soul. Oh, just wait till we do that for the pod. Oh, fuck off. Um, it, it, I like the idea of, like, that, that type of fantasy world has always appealed to me. And something else that I appreciate about both the movie and the book is that it doesn't spoon feed you. Um... The way that a lot of more modern properties do, it's the, you are stepping into a world that already exists and you know exactly as much about it as the main character does. Mm -hmm. um, it has the same vibe as like uh, Diana Wynne-Jones, um, she did How Mo Howl's Moving Castle, you've got Patricia Reed, the, um, oh my goodness, I can't remember what the first one is called, but it, I think the first one is called Talking with Dragons. Um... And then you've got the Stardust, which is another um, sort of male slash female centric, just fairy tale. I, the the fairy tales is all, have always been something that I will turn to. I I will say if you watch the movie and you read the book, it is fairly different. It still hits a lot of the same beats, but it it kind of comes at it in a different way. Okay, so a lot of the times on this show, we're gonna have books that are the same but go into more detail. Yeah. And this obviously does that, but it also approaches the world very differently. It, it's like the episode of The Good Place we just watched where Jason explained what the trolley problem was. 
the way um, Neil Gaiman explained it was that he is a comics guy. He was Sandman, right? Yes. And that's a comic. American Gods, I think, was a comic. Matthew Vaughn, also a comics guy. This um, kick-ass Kingsman. In comics, it's very common for there to be multiple universes. It's all the rage right now. Spider-Verse 2 just came out. I know that's not the title. I'm high. I don't remember which one's which. Why can't we just have numbered sequels anymore, Hollywood? Um, But that's the thing about that franchise is this is Spider-Man, Peter Parker. This is Spider-Man, Miles Morales. They're the same, but different universes, parallel universes, that. With the film version of Stardust, Neil Gaiman considers it that same thing. It's just one universe over, but the same thing's happening. Some things are different, sure. Some outcomes change. Some characters lose a letter in their names. (laughs) But they're still the same story. They're still running on parallel tracks. Yes. I think that is a reasonable explanation. Yes. Well, it came from the writer himself. (laughs) So I will not take credit for that. So you do recommend the book, then? I do. I do recommend the book. It is... It is Neil Gaiman, so it's charmingly bite-sized. I will say there are, I won't say vivid descriptions of sex scenes, but there are multiple sex scenes in the book. Anatomy is described. Nice. Uh, If you are not okay with that, just be aware it's there. Yeah, Mom. (laughs) Stop trying to pawn off your porn books on my wife, Mom. Oh, God. I, I'm sorry. If any of you want us to do Colleen Hoover, no. it will not happen. I can I cannot. Enough time has been has removed for us to watch Fifty Shades. And no, do- no, it hasn't. <laughs> Don't you put that devil on me, woman. You've already watched it twice by choice. I've only watched it once by choice. That's yeah. all right. We're not doing that next anyway. Next, what we're doing. What are we doing next? Next, we are doing. Uh, and this was inspired because last week I watched a documentary called "Taken for a Ride." It's fifty-five minutes long, and it's on YouTube. It's from nineteen ninety-six. I think it PBS will make you violently angry. It pissed me off as somebody who spends forty-five minutes there and back to work in LA traffic. It's about how General Motors conspired to get rid of public transit in 80 American cities. So, of course, we're going to be talking about a book slash movie about how in Los Angeles, the L.A. government got rid of the streetcars and put up highways right through Toontown. That's right. Next time out is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) Thank you. This is also coming from one of our listeners. Thank you, Mark, for the suggestion. So until then, if people would like to find you online, where can they do so? They can find me on Twitter at Pretty Special. Uh, You can also find me on uh, Goodreads at Cody Elizabeth Beck. William, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, letterboxed at Mr. Billy Beck. That's MR Billy Beck. You can also find the show on Twitter at soon major pod. Look at you having consistency across your social media platforms. I have a brand. Okay. Oh God. And I need to hold on to that brand. And my brand is being your husband. (laughs) So you should, you should feel grateful that I took your name. Something something feminism. Alright, I'm gonna hold up a dress to dance the can can. <laughs>